chapter 14 all the way to chapter 5 verse 16. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of of, he, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And rolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what you have heard what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there, will be, that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet, Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many, many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he went right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on, the, and on the Sabbath, he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed, and they said to each other, what words, are, what, what words these are? With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits, and they come out, and the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought Jesus, all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because he knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when, they came, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, 
because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Chapter 5. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats, left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put, to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught, the people, and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep, deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Then when, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up to shore, left everything, and followed him. When Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, Don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more. So crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give her, her a hand. Thanks, Madoni. And I think we're tried here. Okay. Good morning, LVC. Am I on, Gideon? Can you hear me? Where is this thing? I can't. I don't even know where it is in my hair. This is not. I keep saying an Afro-friendly mic, Pastor. Oh, there we go. All right, here we go. Can you hear me? Good morning, everyone. How are you? Oh, you're not great, huh? Okay, well, I guess that's on me then to try and lift you up a little bit before you head home. Welcome to LVC this morning. My name is Lily. I'm a member here, and it's always a very humbling and um, big privilege to offer some insight into God's Word. Um, I was really just looking at the teachers who were standing up earlier for the kids' church and thinking, I used to teach kids' church, but I think I was asked to step aside. So you are stuck with me instead this morning. I was demoted to adult service (laughs) teaching. Um, It's been some week, hasn't it? Uh, It's been, uh, you know, former President Moy died. There were a range of think pieces and tweets about his legacy. President Trump in the United States was acquitted in his impeachment trial. There was a range of feelings about that. Can you still hear me? Am I on? Um, The coronavirus, coronavirus, am I saying it right, continues to cause all kinds of stress and concern for people worldwide. And in each one of those scenarios, as I thought about this passage that we're starting in Luke today, each one of those scenarios this week was a pursuit of truth and somehow. 
looking back at history and trying to identify what were the facts about Moyes and his life and his legacy. Looking at the U.S. president saying, was there enough evidence to convict him of crimes that he is being charged with? Looking at this virus and saying, what is the evidence of its potential and its threat to us here in Kenya, right? We're all thinking about truth and evidence and the calculations that we have to make to come to a conclusion that we will eventually accept as fact, a conclusion that we will eventually base our actions and maybe our lives on. And as we think about Luke, the author that we're thinking about in the book that we're going to start a new series on, we see the same kind of pattern, a pursuit of truth, a looking at the evidence, a documenting of history, and then ultimately a a real invitation to make a decision. And as we sang this morning, that decision is, will I follow Jesus? Is this evidence enough for me to build a life on? Is it enough to hear the words of Joseph's son and then decide to reorient my entire life based on what he said? Is it enough? Is the message, what the message says, and who the message is about, enough for me to make a decision today? That's what we're going to talk about. So for the next three hours, we're just going to dig deep into the chapter 4, 14 through 5, 16 of Luke. There's so much in this chapter. I hope that over the next, I think it's eight weeks or so that we're in this series, that in between you will actually read Luke and come with a bit of reading because there's so much. There's no way we can cover it all. Um, I was kind of geeking out about all the historical facts that are there. It's just a beautiful passage of of history, really, of Greco-Roman history that we now can hold on to as evidence about this man that we have all gathered here this morning to worship and adore. So I can't wait to get started. I hope you've had your Weetabix, your oatmeal, your keto, whatever you did this morning, your avocado to really focus in on this text. Are you with me? Are we together? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you uh, for people's patience with parking situations, people's willingness to get up, get kids ready, skip breakfast, and just be here. God, so we are here, Father. And before we got here, you were here, Jesus. You're our foundation. You're our alpha. You're our beginning, and you are our end. So, Father God, this morning, may only your words and your truth elevate to the surface. May everything I have to say be on the wayside, and may your truth be what just bounces off the page this morning, God. Convict our hearts. Show us the way. Help us to hear and receive your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, excuse me. We are starting the series in Luke. And we're starting in chapter 4, but let me just 20 seconds give you a sense of what's happened so far. So Luke um, is writing this letter to Theophilus, whose name means beloved of God. Jeremy was pointing this out in our kind of uh, meeting about this, that that means beloved of God. So in some ways, this letter is really for all of us. And in the prior chapters, Jesus has um, basically come out of his 30 years of kind of uh, being a, a private citizen, if you will. He has been baptized by John in a public way. And if you recall, the heavens open. The dove descends upon him. There's an affirmation of who he is as the son of God in whom God is well pleased. He then is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. You remember this, those of you churchgoers? He's tempted and he comes out of that by responding to the devil's um, temptations every time with the word of God. And then by the time we get here to chapter 4, we are seeing Jesus really 
taking those kind of steps and now taking the biggest leap out into a really public scene in a synagogue to say, I'm starting my work. So as I was thinking about the baptism in particular, I I was really thinking about how it's such a significant part of our Christian theory and understanding, right? This this idea that God came to earth and baptized by a man. And last year, um, Ben and I were in Jordan, um, and he was there for work, and I got to tag along. And we were going to see Petra. You guys know Petra, this really ancient area? And so we were driving along the highway. Ben was very pleased with himself to be driving in a a country he's never been in before. I was just happy to, you know, not be home. And as we're driving, you know, Google Maps will give you updates on your progress, right? In 100 kilometers, turn this, da-da-da-da-da. And Google kept prompting us, like, in 50 kilometers, the baptismal site will be on your right. And we're just driving along, not really paying attention. It's 50 kilometers, 25, 25, 10-5. And we keep getting closer and closer, and we're like, what baptismal site is Google talking about? And, you know, both of us, like, preach here. So imagine, you have people preaching in front of you who are in Jordan who are like, what baptismal site is Google talking about? And it's like the baptismal site, Jesus' baptismal site. And we finally see a sign as we get closer. I don't know if you can read it, but it says baptismal site. We were not even planning to go. It was not on our radar to go. But we saw it and we are like, we have to stop. Let me, I said, we have to stop. <laughs> ben said, I'm sure it's a tourist trap. I'm sure it's not even really evidence that it was his. I'm sure that they just thrown together what? I was like, what did they throw together? The Jordan River and put it here for us to look at then? It's definitely the real thing. And so after some back and forth, we decide to stop. I'm sorry, I hear clicking. Is it me, Gideon? Do you guys hear clicking? It's my earring. I knew that. Okay. Sorry, just pause for one second. Oh my God. This is why I got demoted from kids church because it's distracting the children from all my jewelry and accessories. Okay. Thank you, Yvonne. For telling you what that was. Okay, so I convinced Ben to stop, and we get out. And there's about 30 or 40 people there. We take a long-ish bus ride from the road. When we have to get on the bus, Ben's like, "This is definitely a tourist trap. There's no. Why do we have to get on a bus? If there's a river, we should see the river." I was like, "Let's just get on the bus, Ben." So we get on the bus, and then of course we get off the bus. We get to a little house thing where they're taking tickets. And guess, of course, what do they want now? They want money. So Ben is like, "Nope, nope, not paying." to see Jesus' burial site, or not burial, sorry, baptismal site. I was like, Ben, we're about to spend money on seeing some pagan carvings in Petrash. Can we not put out a few bucks to see where my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was baptized? Please, Ben. And to which point he kind of, you know, feels a little silly, and he forks over the money. We get in the bus, pay our money, we go to the site, and this is where they take us. Um, and we were like, this kit doesn't look right. <laughs> This looks like a little green pool where, you know, someone maybe forgot to change out the water after last season. But they're like, no, no, this is the site where Jesus, we think Jesus was baptized. Apparently several churches were built on and around that site, five or so. So they show us some rocks, some old rocks some stuff. And I'm moved to tears, you know, I'm just like so moved. And, and they're like, you know, before we take you to the river banks, we have an opportunity for you to buy a few things. So they're like, there, you can buy like a cross. And I'm like... Everyone in our group, there's about 25, 30 people. Anyone, the tour guide's like, anybody want to buy a cross? Everyone's like, no. And I'm like, yes, I want to buy a cross. And Ben's like, what? It's like, we already paid money. I was like, but I want to buy a cross at the Jordan where Jesus was baptized. So they're like, okay, great. So ma'am, you can just follow us. Now, because I want to buy a cross, all 30 people have to leave this site and now go to the gift shop 
which is definitely a tourist trap. And then I go in and I buy one cross, but then I see more crosses there. And I decide, well, I have four kids, so I should get one for all four of my kids because when am I ever going to be at the Jordan again, right? So I buy four crosses. And at this point, the target audience clearly of this tour guide, like the person the tour guide is targeting, 100% is me. Every little tidbit, every little fact is directed at me. Like he's making eye contact with me every time he tells me something. So after I buy the crosses, he's like, ma'am, would you like to get baptized in the river? He's like, all you have to do is buy this white robe and you can get baptized in the Jordan River. And I'm putting my hand up and I see Ben out of the corner of my eye, grab my hand, pull it down, basically tackle me and drag me away from the tour guide. So even though I did not get to buy that clothes and get baptized, we did go to the edge of the Jordan River. And you can see me there kind of excitedly dripping my hands. Okay, so why do I tell you that big, long story? This is why I tell you that big, long story. Because when we look at the book of Luke, Luke is putting out a case, and he talks about in chapter 1 that he wants to write an orderly account that many other people have done so already, but that he wants to make sure, line by line, detail by detail, witness by witness, he provides evidence for the belief in Jesus. Now, when I went to Jordan River, I basically wanted some souvenirs of my experience, right? I wanted a picture. I wanted a cross. I wanted to dip my toe. I wanted all that evidence to say I was there. I had this experience. I wanted to remember what it was like to maybe be in the place where Jesus once was. And for the believers in this time, in Luke's um, era, which was about, this book was written, we think about 55 to 65, 70 years after Christ's death, They didn't have anything to hold on to, right? They didn't have a souvenir that they could hold on to. They didn't have, you know, pieces of Jesus' robe that was circulating that you could buy as as evidence that he died and that he was there. They didn't have crosses that they were carving out of olive wood and selling on the side of the road. They didn't have those souvenirs or that evidence. So Luke is trying to provide that in this gospel. And of all the gospels that were um, the four Gospels, Luke's Gospel offers us the most minutiae in the details surrounding Jesus' birth. It's the only Gospel that has the birth story, the birth narrative in Luke chapter 2. It offers us a bit of glimpse of his early life. And then it offers detailed feedback about how Mary was feeling. It offers all this really specific detail in order to provide evidence, in order to give the Gentile listeners to this letter something to hang on to. And the beautiful thing about um, Luke, sorry, and what he did in his gospel is that he offered the listeners not only spiritual facts, but historical facts. First of all, Luke himself, it's not 100% sure, and there's some debate, was likely a Gentile. And the author of Luke, we also think, wrote the book of Acts. So when taken together, there is strong historical evidence that a Gentile, Somebody outside of God's covenant wrote a majority of the New Testament. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? 20 to 30 percent of that entire New Testament is, depending on if you count spaces and, and all that, was written by this author, by potentially Luke. Of all the references to women that can be found in Jesus, as followers of Jesus, or references to them in the gospel, about two thirds are found in Luke's gospel. Do you see how Luke is brightening the net? He's saying, okay, you know what, number one, I'm not a a Jew. I don't have access to the covenant and to the law. But I'm writing this account to you in an orderly way. 
And because he's in, now he's including the stories of women who we know had no power in Jewish or even Greek or Roman society at the time. The parable of the Good Samaritan, which kind of throws the door wide open to anybody to have access to Jesus, is only found in the book of Luke. Historically, he names 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands accurately, so much so that historians in the early 19th century went out to disprove Luke's gospel, one in particular, William Ramsey. And after going out to Asia Minor to disprove it and doing archaeological dig after another after another, came away converted to the gospel because he could not refute the accuracy of Luke's gospel and the historicity of Luke's gospel. There's a special emphasis on the poor. Luke includes this beautiful passage at the bottom of uh, Luke 2 where he talks about how Mary could only bring pigeons in offering. And if you look at Leviticus, the, the basis of which this temple practice was done after you have a child, you bring an offering, she could only bring pigeons because that was what the poor were allowed to bring. Otherwise, you had to bring a lamb. So the fact that Mary and Joseph could only bring two pigeons was Luke saying to the poor, listen, you are welcome too. You are included in this story. Luke's gospel gives us a familial tie to John the Baptist, who we know was wildly outside of societal norms. That's good news for me. Somebody who doesn't always fit in. I think Luke was signaling to his listeners, John the Baptist, you remember that guy you heard about? The guy who was eating locusts and wild honey? You remember that guy? He's actually related to this Jesus. He talks about his early childhood. And that finally, there's a theme of joy in Luke's gospel. So as in the next few weeks, we're thinking about Luke and why it matters and why are we taking time to dig deep, I want you to keep in mind this historical framework about Luke's gospel that really makes him unique. And it makes him unique because he's accurate. I've already mentioned that, how it was be able to prove his, the historicity of the gospel in a way that other accounts have not had the same robust kind of holding of the history. And secondly, it's Luke's focus in the gospels that to me is so compelling. Now, let me back up for just a second before I go into this. Luke himself, likely a, a, a Gentile, okay? The audience of Luke's letter, also Gentile Christians living in a largely Gentile setting, okay? So, Gentiles following Gentile pagan religions would have had a polytheistic society, one in which there was a lot of um, sacrifice of children and a lot of brutality in the worship of their gods. And so as Luke is writing to them as one of their own and communicating this message, he does so with a focus now that the division between Jews and Gentiles is now irrelevant. Over and over and over again in Luke's gospel, he highlights how Jesus, by nature of who he was, destroys the wall between God and Gentiles. Amen? That's most of us here, no? That's most of us here. Secondly, as a Gentile himself, he had been converted by somebody else's message of the good news. He had heard from somebody else about this Jesus, and it was so compelling that he himself shifted who he was following. And so Luke attempts in this gospel to give the same kind of robust, compelling accurate picture to those who might be listening to say, yes, it is risky, but it's worth it. It is worth it to make the decision to follow Jesus. And as believers today, let me just pause and ask you, how well do you know your gospel? How well do you know the scripture? How well do you know the historical evidence for the faith that we profess? This summer, we, we took a road trip and we listened on tape with our kids to the case of Christ by Lee Strobel. How many of you know that book? Some of you. So he basically was an atheist writer, I think, for the Washington Post. 
and took time to investigate the validity of scripture from a historical angle, interviewed lots of um, academics and did a lot of history in order to develop a case for Christ. Let me encourage all of us, if you only believe in Jesus because you like how church makes you feel, or maybe somebody told you once that, you know, people at LBC were nice and you could go to lunch afterwards and people were good to you, or maybe because you've heard the Bible stories and they sound good enough, that is not enough. Look into the historicity of our gospel and of our Jesus. If you feel like in 2020, you know, I need a boost to my faith. I'm, I'm a little, you know, off. I'm not feeling like I'm really... Can I encourage you to maybe look at an apologetics book? One of them I, I think I put up here. Yes. This is just a small sampling. There are so, 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 so many. But sometimes what our faith needs and what Luke offers his readers is not just a story of love and of grace and this amazing man, but he offers historical evidence. And that historical evidence gave those believers in that time who were risking their lives, it gave them the confidence to say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. The risk to us right now is pretty nominal. I can walk out into the middle of Junction Mall and scream, I'm a follower of Jesus! And I'll probably get several amens. People will probably come up and congratulate me. Very little risk, right? Not so for these believers. And yet what gave them confidence was this robust testimony that Luke offers them. These accurate dates and time. The recalling of specific Roman rulers and what they were doing and the time stamp on Jesus' activity gave them confidence. And some of us believers, if somebody sat us down right today on, at, in coffee and said, what's the historical evidence for Jesus in non-biblical texts, my guess is that many of us would not know or could not offer more than maybe one example. Yeah, maybe. Don't raise your hand, but maybe. So, quickly, because it's a new year, I brought a copy of one of my favorite books that talks about abeletics, um, More Than a Comforter. How many of you have read this? If you've read it, raise your hand. Okay, so okay, so you guys cannot play in this game, because I want to give this away to somebody here who hasn't read it, but would read it. So, before I give this away, I only want you to participate if you will read it. This is a church, you have to be honest. Okay? Oh, I already see one hand there, but there's a whole game. I have to play a game. Okay, so Jesus' public ministry started when he was how old? 30. So this is going to be for those 30 and under. Sorry, I know, I know, I know, sorry. I'm preaching again in a few weeks. <laughs> for, for next time I'm here, I'll do it for the over 30 crowd. I'm also not in. I'm also not in that crowd. So don't worry. Okay, so under 30 people, who will read books? Are you here? Are you with me? So raise your hand. You're under 30, and you will read the book if you get it. One person. Okay, so I just give it to Okay, two, three. Okay. All right. Okay, so I see several people. Okay, so this is going to be real quick Bible fact trivia. I should have done it Kenyan trivia. That would have been more interesting. Okay, how old? This is so easy. How old was Jesus when he went to the temple? Shout it out. Okay, who said it first? Congratulations. All right. That was too easy, but you know, anyways, read the book, share it with others. Next time, over 30 guys, it's all about you. But the point is here, Jesus, uh, sorry, Luke offers us historical evidence for Jesus, such that it was compelling enough for his audience, to make it compelling enough for his audience, of which he himself was a member. So he would have known the questions the Gentiles would have had. He would have been familiar with their doubts. 
he would have been familiar with their anxieties about following this very rogue, radical, outside of every single societal norm. This faith movement was 0% popular amongst the ruling class, amongst the educated, amongst those with any kind of power or wealth, because it threatened every societal system. And Luke would have known that. He would have known how very scary it was, and he did everything he could to provide a historical, accurate account that would hold up in the face of such resistance. So let's look now at not only what was interesting about Luke's gospel, but specifically about what we reveal about Jesus in Luke's gospel. We're still together? All right. So, I keep forgetting to click here. All right, cool things about Jesus and Luke. I apologize for the high spiritual language of cool things. I just couldn't think of a better way to say it. So you're stuck with my very elementary understanding of, of the Gospels. So some things that we learn specifically about Jesus in Luke. Basically, from age 12 to 30, we don't have much evidence at all about what Jesus did. Basically nothing. He shows up at the temple. His parents lose him for three days. He says, don't you know I have to be in my father's house? And then he doesn't really show back up again until we see him being baptized by John the Baptist. So a big gap in time. Um, theologian Philip Schaff says this about him that I think is a really powerful statement. He grew up among a people seldom and only contemptuously named by the ancient classics and subjected at the time by a foreign oppressor in a remote and conquered province of the Roman Empire in the darkest district of Palestine in a country town of proverbial insignificance. Jesus had no kind of CV resume that would impress anyone. He was as common and as ordinary and as regular as you could be in Jewish society. He spent his youth in poverty and manual labor as a carpenter's son. By the time his public ministry begins, he is now probably twice the age of what his mother was when she had him. Imagine that. Um, We think Bible accounts that, that Mary was probably just a teenager, 14 or 15 when she had Jesus. And by this time, Jesus has reached twice her age. We don't really hear about Joseph Again, after the temple scene, some scholars believe that perhaps he died young. And perhaps in that 12 to 38 uh, range, what Jesus was doing was taking care of his family. That the reason he's not released into this public ministry, which really not only subjects him to ridicule, but subjects his entire family, was because he was focused inward for that season of time. And as a side note to this, and I'll come to this at the end, let me encourage those of you who feel like, God, there's so much I want to do. You've given me this gifting and that gifting, and I'm ready to just launch out. But instead, I'm kind of stuck here in this place, or in this job, or with this family, or these kids, or this opportunity, or this, situa- this situation, or here in Kenya. I'm kind of stuck here. It doesn't feel like you're doing anything. Let me tell you, he is at work. Those ordinary, boring, uninteresting, tiring years are the foundation of what Jesus would become publicly. Those private labors, those private anxieties, those private aches and questions and doubts of will I ever, will it ever, will God see me, has God forgotten me, all those private years becomes the foundation of this very public ministry that eventually changes the world. Amen? So let me encourage you, if you are in that season, God has not forgotten about you. Stay faithful in that ordinariness. God has not forgotten you. We also see that the reason maybe 30 was interesting was that this is a time where in Greek society men often entered public service and Levites began to practice in the temple. In this genealogy in Luke 3, 
different than Matthew, which ends up with calling Jesus the Christ. In Luke chapter 3, and then it feeds into 4, Jesus is called the Son of God. And we continue to get this picture of this sonship, this idea that there's a connection between us. The language now is something we're familiar with, right? We can identify with having a child or being a parent. And the Christ might have been a big idea that was hard to understand, but being a son was something that the Gentiles would also understand. They would understand what it would mean to inherit or be connected to somebody in society that then gives you access to more power or more authority, right? They would understand sonship. Amen? So you see why for the Gentiles, Luke's choosing of that term, that way of defining who Jesus was, becomes really important as a signal to them to say, everything about this Jesus is not unfamiliar to you. There's a lot more familiar about this Jesus than you know. And in the next eight weeks, we're going to see how over and over again, Luke sets up before his Gentile audience example after example after example after example of how Jesus was more like them and more accessible to them than they thought. All of these slides will be on LVC's website, so I won't spend time on this one, but, oh, sorry, I keep forgetting to click over here. This just kind of gives you, again, another timeline of how much time Jesus spent in those ordinary days. All right, so Mazzoni read for us a very long passage, and I won't revisit, but you can see how very, very many things Jesus does in this long passage in Luke. He teaches, he heals, he rebukes demons, he does so much. He was extremely busy from those 30 previous years where it was quieter maybe to now it's like zero to 60. He's taken off in demonstrating over and over again who he is. But before we can appreciate truly all of his acts, I want us to look back at the scripture from the lens of three different things. We're going to revisit these passages, and because they're long, we're not going to read them, but I've highlighted certain things that I hope will jump out at you, and I hope that in your home groups this week and in your personal study, you will revisit and consider. As we read this passage, I want you to think about three things. One, how the Jewish crowds and beyond were reacting to Jesus. Okay, so I've highlighted those in orange. When you see them on the screen, that's a signal to you. This is how the crowds are reacting to him. Secondly, I want you to notice in blue what the Gentiles, who are the audience for Luke's letter, what they might notice. It may not be what you and I notice, because we're actually more like the Jews in this scenario, right? We've been around church long enough. We know our church ABCs. We know the books of the Bible, la, 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 right? We know all the stories, the songs. So you may not even notice it, but as I was reading it, I was like, God, what would the Gentiles have noticed? So I want you to pay attention to what's highlighted in blue as what the Gentile listeners to Luke's letters might have noticed. And most importantly, I want you to see how Jesus, three very specific times, what he says about himself. The words that he uses about himself and his ministry. So if we look at the first chunk of scripture here. You can see that in orange, over and over again, the crowds are remarking at this man. News about him spreads. They're praising him. Their eyes are fastened on him. They're amazed. They're asking, isn't this Joseph's son? And then things by the end, after his very first conversation with the public, start to go south. Can you imagine, like, did you you catch that what Maloney read to you at verse 28? when he starts to talk about what happens with Elisha and Elijah, that they get so mad about this passage that they want to drive him off a cliff. 
that sounds like just a normal story, right? It just sounds so ordinary. But just imagine Pastor Jeremy jumps up right now, tackles me like Ben did when I was trying to buy the baptismal robe, and like pushes me out the door. That's pretty dramatic, no? So in his very first outing, very first outing out of the gate, Jesus goes from, this is pretty cool. Look, Joseph's boy has grown up. Look at him. He's all right. I used to teach him football. Look at him now, teaching us scriptures. Uh, isn't he nice? Amazing. Mary should be so proud. It goes from that to, this man is a heretic. Let's get him out of our, our, our synagogue. Amen? We see that transition so extreme. So that's what the Jewish crowd primarily is ha- what's happening in their minds as they hear his saying. But I want you to see what would the Gentile listeners to Luke's letter, what would they notice about this passage? I think they would notice a couple of things here. First of all, that he would be rejected in his hometown. You can see that first passage. Um, it says that, do you uh, do hear in your hometown what, you have, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum? And right before that, which I didn't highlight, about him being rejected, a prophet being rejected in his own hometown. I think Luke includes those pieces to say to them, Gentile listeners, we know that following Jesus is going to cost you something. But guess what? The very first time Jesus talks about his ministry, he pretty much says, I know what it feels like to be rejected. He's actually saying, I am God, but I'm also going to be humanly rejected. You and your risk to follow me, I went first. I went first. I put myself out there first. And the rejection that you are trying to figure out if you're willing to take on by following me, I took it on already. Do you see that? How a Gentile listener might notice that? And they would notice it in particular because the examples that he uses to talk about the Jewish Jewish famines and the lack of rain from the Old Testament, in both those scenarios, God's mercy does not show up to a Jewish follower. It shows up to pagans to the widow and Zarephath in the region of Sidon, and to Naaman, the Syrian. These two characters are pagans. In the middle of famine that lasted for three years and and no rain falling, the deliverance and the mercy God shows was not to his own people. It was to those way outside of God's covenant blessing. Um, This is very good news for us. Spoiler alert. This is excellent news for me this morning, that God's mercy does not just show up for the holiest of the holy people. God's mercy, God's redemption, God's miracle power will show up for me even when I'm outside of his blessing, outside of his relationship. God's mercy shows up. And for that Gentile listener, they're noticing them because they've got cousins in Syria. They've got a brother who's named Zarephath or a sister. That's familiar to them. Not so much to the Jews, but it would be to those Gentile listeners being like, what? Jesus is, is, is going to offer us some hope in Syria? That's, he's willing to go there? That would have stuck out to those Gentile listeners in a way that would have made the Jews furious. So I ask us this morning, what makes you furious when you see church patterns or pastors or teachers extending opportunities? What, 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 what offends you? Sometimes that offense is misplaced. Sometimes what you're offended at is what Jesus is trying to do because it leaves those of us who think we're in out. This would have been a big sign to the Gentiles. And in here, Jesus announces himself in a way that is so beautiful 
from Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58, he pulls out this passage. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Hallelujah. That's where Jesus starts, with the poor. I mean, there are a lot of things that could convince me to follow faith. There are a lot of things that push my doubts in the forefront too and tempt me to move away. The thing that always brings me back is Jesus. I can't get over him. I can't get over him. Who is this God that says, I came to give good news to the poor? That's the very first people on my mind. And as followers of him, can we also put the poor very first in our minds? Let's go to the next big chunk of scripture. So now, he continues on. He starts to cast out demons that are really loud. And you see again, now again, a new crowd of Jews. Not the same ones in that first temple, but in a different place in Capernaum. They're amazed at his teachings. They're amazed by the things that he's doing. And at the end, they say, they try to keep Jesus from leaving him. They're like, this guy is healing people and and casting out those who are oppressed. And I think the Gentiles would have noticed the authority that Jesus continues to have in these spiritual settings, that he continues to have authority over supernatural forces. You see, those Gentiles, similar to the Jews, actually had structures in place that made worship work for them. And they never had access to that authority. It was always very much a very small portion of people who had access to any kind of power. You forget these societies. Women had no power. Young people had no power. There were slaves everywhere. The power was held by a very small portion of people. And, and for the Jewish audience, they were, they were enslaved to Rome. And I think the Gentiles would have noticed that this man, and Luke points out to them, this man has authority. He might say and he might come accessible and humble and meek, but do not sleep on this God. He has authority. Amen? That authority to them would have been evidence that as they face beheadings and torture and persecution, that God might indeed have authority over the very hard trials that were going to come if they chose to follow him. Wouldn't that be encouraging to you? If you knew that, okay, I'm going to speed down this road and I'm just going to drive as fast as I can, but you know, I've got, you know, President Uhuru on my call list. You'd feel a little more confident, right? Because you're thinking, I know somebody who has authority to overturn whatever might happen to me if I break this law, right? You might feel a little bit more confident. And the fact of the matter is, as a regular, ordinary person, Joseph's son, he had no authority, really, in the natural way. But in the supernatural demonstration of his power, the Gentile listeners would have noticed, this man has authority. There's some confidence I can place on him because of who he is and what he commands. Amen? Same God today. Hallelujah. Same God today. Hallelujah. Our God's arm is not short, nor is he weak. He still has authority today. And the church says, they say it louder. Our God has authority. At the end of this passage, before he moves on, Jesus says, I cannot stay here because I must proclaim the good news. I can't help it. Look, I had those 30 years, but now I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission. I have to proclaim proclaim the good news in other towns also. Again, for the Gentiles, I think they would have noticed that too. That he wasn't just going to come to his own people. He was going to go to these cities that traditionally were outside any kind of compassion from religious structures. In this last section of text, 
Oh, it's 11.22, mercy. A couple more things that I think you notice, and I think this is so beautiful. The crowds continue to crowd around him, to listen, to lean in. They're astonished by the fish that he enables Peter and his colleagues to catch. I'm sure they're also astonished by the fact that Peter and, and colleagues leave that fish and don't take it to market and don't sell it. That seems a little silly, but anyways, they leave everything and they follow him. But I think the Gentiles may have really noticed this phrase here, where Simon Peter, in response to this miracle, doesn't just say, oh yeah, Jesus, you should do this for me because we're both Jewish guys, but his response to Jesus' miracle of provision is, go away from me, I'm sinful. I have no business being in fellowship with you because you certainly are not of this world. And what good news to a Gentile listener that somebody that should have societal access to another Jew would recognize, nope, this is not, we're not talking about business as usual anymore. We're not operating in the same systems that we've been operating in for hundreds and hundreds of years. Something different is happening. And yes, it highlights his sin. It says very clearly, I'm a sinful man. Well, what's Jesus' response? I think the Gentile listener would have noticed. It says, don't be afraid. Over and over again in the Gospels, we see this beautiful message. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And for that listener who was unsure of whether or not I can indeed ask my boss to come to church with me, if I can indeed refuse to engage in activity that I know is compromising who I am, if I indeed have the courage to say to somebody, have you thought about God? That God would say in response to that, don't be afraid. Yes, we are full of sin. Yes, we are outside of what every system says should give us access to God. But his response to the Jewish fishermen and to the Gentile listener and to you and I today is don't be afraid. Amen? We still need to hear that message. All that news I talked about at the beginning today, (laughs) that's scary. I mean, my poor kids, when I talk about saying something like, you know, one one day when I have grandkids, they're like, we're not going to have grandkids. The earth is melting. There will be no earth. Why would we have kids? I mean, that to me is very scary. And God's message to us today remains, don't be afraid. Jesus here says a beautiful thing. And for the sake of time, I'll I'll end here. He has this scene, which is really one of my favorite passages in Scripture, where a leper comes to him, and it says that he is covered with a skin condition from head to toe. And he sees Jesus and he says to him, if you are willing, make me clean. Symbolically, clearly, I think Luke was saying, the leprosy that's from head to toe is us. Sin, head to toe, right? Attitude, doubt, fear, confusion, head to toe. But most importantly, sin, the thing that does separate us. The reason why the temple had a curtain before the Holy of Holies. The reason why only certain people could offer sacrifices. Sin. That very real thing that we cannot just call mistakes or other, other kind of softer language. Sin. Head to toe. And the leper doesn't just say, heal me. He kind of is sussing Jesus out. He's just kind of poking him and just, just saying, if you are willing... If you are willing, make me clean. Can you imagine what Jesus' face must have been like when he saw him? Can you imagine? 
This is why he came. This is the whole reason he left his father's side. This is the whole reason that he knew what he was about to endure in the next three years would be be beyond human capacity. This is the moment he has been waiting for. If I am willing, yeah, I am willing. Be made whole. Let me tell you, friends, the reason I think that Luke starts his gospel with this passage from Isaiah 61 and 58 is to remind us that candidates for God's mercy, the candidates for God's friendship, the candidates for God's love, eternal, unconditional, unbreakable, unshakable love are the poor, the prisoner, the oppressed, the blind. Those are the candidates that God is looking for. And that is you and I this morning. And I think this morning the Holy Spirit is here. And I think the question to us is, are we willing to say, yep, poor, right here. Oppressed, right here. Bound by my own stupid decisions, right here. Yep, blind by my own foolishness, right here. That's me, Jesus. Are we willing to be as bold as that leper this morning to say, Jesus, if you are willing, make me clean. Take it away, Father. Renew me again today. And to that Gentile listener who was listening to Luke's story and thinking about, wow, he's got the dates in there. He's got the historicity of our region and of our forefathers in there. And then he brings in this simple, leprous man who by all accounts, Jew or Gentile, it didn't matter, nobody wanted to be around the lepers. They were completely rejected. And by touching them, by touching the leper, Jesus would be rejected too. And imagine to that Gentile listener who's listening to Luke's letter. Not only does he say, I'm willing, but he touches him. He makes physical contact with the very thing that would make him an outcast. He extends favor to us and accepts rejection for himself. This story can become very common to many of us who have been in the church a long time. It can become normal and ordinary, but there's nothing ordinary about our God. And this morning, I think what will take it for us to receive God's healing is just that admission to say, poor, oppressed, my own foolishness. But Jesus, if you're willing, make me clean. And I know our Savior's message, his position, his posture towards us is, this is why I came. I am willing to be made whole. So as we close, I want to pray for two different groups of people this morning. And I'll encourage you to take a look. I had um, 18 more slides that I did not get to this morning. (laughs) So I'll encourage you to look on the website this week. And maybe I'll actually show you the last slide because I think it's worth seeing. So, back at the Jordan River. When you go to the Jordan River, we were on the Jordan country side of the Jordan River. I did not realize when we got there that I would be looking into Israel on the other side. Again, we were not planning to even go. (laughs) We were like the worst tourists. We get to the edge, and I took the, picture on, I took the picture on this side. I was struck by in the middle of the water. So I took this picture here, here, near the dot. I was struck by in the water, there is still a division that they place to indicate where 
the Jordan side begins and when the Israeli side begins. On our side, nobody was getting baptized. You remember how Ben prohibited me from fulfilling my lifelong goal of being baptized? Remember that? Yes. So on our side, nobody was getting baptized. There was not even really nice staging. As I looked over to the Israeli side, you can see how much nicer their platform is. You can see people gathering there about to get in the water. This is a picture I got from Google. But these are the white things that I didn't get to buy. There were a lot of people getting baptized. People were singing Amazing Grace. It was very celebratory. And it was very striking to me how different the two sides of this very narrow body of water were. All because of this division that remains to this day, saying, you're out, we're in. I'm in, you're out. Friends, hallelujah. This is why I follow Jesus. There is no more division. He takes me as I am today. Messed up today, I have access to a perfect God. He is flawless. I am super flawed. And yet that doesn't disqualify me. There is no barrier. There is no more division. Jesus extends to us today and just says, I'm willing. Come on. So this morning I want to pray for two groups. One, those of you who may be feeling like Jesus has forgotten me. I'm stuck back in that first 30 years. When is my moment, God? I want to pray for you. I want to encourage you that as Jesus, there's divine purpose in those early years that might feel like they're back burner to you. They're going to be main stage, huh? In the kingdom. So I want to pray for you if you're feeling a little restless about that. Secondly, I want to pray for the other side of us, those of us who have gotten a little too comfortable. We've gotten a little too accustomed. We're the Jews in this story. We're not feeling the risk of following Jesus because we don't really follow him. We just say we do. We don't step out. We don't extend his grace. We're quiet. I want to pray for us that we remember who we are. We remember that poor, oppressed, blind us can have access to a living God. And then like Luke, we can share that account with others. Amen? We can offer that truth and that hope to others. Okay? So I'm going to ask us all to stand, the worship team to come up if you don't mind. And I'm just going to pray for us and I'm going to ask you... After the service, please do go continue to pray there. Stay in your seats and pray here if you want. But talk to Jesus. Why did you show up this morning? Why did you even come to church? Why did you bother? Why did you bother if you're just going to go home saying, Why? Jesus is here. Put our hands up. Let's say, Jesus, are you willing? And he's saying, Yep, 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 I'm willing. I'm here. Yeah? Let's not leave out here the same. Why? You can even find a parking spot today. Make it worth it. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that ah, you're just down with the broken. You're down with those who are confused. You are down with us, God. There is so much this week that I got wrong. And yet, Jesus, again this morning, you just say, I will make you clean. This is why I came. This is why I showed up. So, Father, we lift our hands. Just lift your hands to God if you feel like it or in your mind lift it and just say, Lord, I am poor, oppressed, blind, bound. Make me clean. Make us clean, Jesus. Just help us be free of these things, God, that have got us choked up and tangled up where we, can, we don't even understand what we're reading sometimes, God, because we are blinded by our sin that we don't even want to give up. We don't even want to give up this sin, God. But we're saying today, if you're willing, God, okay, we'll try. We will, we will trust that you are bigger than our stubbornness, Jesus. 
that today, this morning, Lord God, we would say, we are willing, God, make us clean. Allow us to see, understand, and follow you again with full hearts, God. And Father, for those of us who might just feel like, Lord, I have been serving you and sitting here, and it's been 30 years, and you haven't shown up yet, God, encourage them, Holy Spirit. Give them a new vision, a new understanding of the season in their life, Lord. Help them to see clearly where you are in this season, Jesus. Help them to remember that there is nothing ordinary about changing a diaper or sending an email or just passing the offering bucket, Lord, that you take the super little things and you make them extraordinary. So, Father, encourage them, I pray. Encourage them this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you. We love you. Thank you for this gospel. Help us to receive it fully and be transformed. Jesus' name.